Robin and I, my wife, Robin, and I spent 10 great days in the capital of what's now the Czech Republic, what was in my lifetime, the first 10 years of my life, Czechoslovakia, under the Iron Curtain. And um, we stayed right there on the Charles River, and it was a wonderful little time for us before we had kids. And started reading, became familiar with a person called Václav Havel during that time. He was the first president of the, of the Republic once it moved from out from the Iron Curtain to become a Republic. And he was a dissident and playwright and poet and novel, thought, uh, thought man, thinker. That, that's the word, thinker. Uh, public, public thinker. He was put in prison by the state for being a dissident before um, when it was Czechoslovakia. So he became the first president. And anyway, I, be, I became uh, familiar with his, some of his writings during that time. He wrote, he wrote uh, a bunch of stuff. I have his open letters. One of his most famous pieces of writing is called The Power of the Powerless. And it is, it is a trenchant piece of writing. And, and one of the things that he talks about in, in The Power of the Powerless is he says, look, the powerless, those, your everyday citizen that's under um, an authoritarian, an unjust authoritarian, authoritarian regime like so many were um, in Soviet governed states, they, they have the power, the seemingly powerless have a power. And that power, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn would say, is, is the power of truth. We all have the ability to speak the truth. And, um, Often it's in little ways, and sometimes it's in not doing something. And so one of the things he talks about, but if there's an aggregate power um, in if everyone commits to only saying what's true and never saying anything that is untrue, then then regimes, unjust regimes, which are always built on untruths, falsehoods, lies, will crumble eventually because there won't be a bunch of people going along with the system uh, to prop it up anymore. And the going along with the system is basically refusing to uh, to speak truth, and and um, and so he he illustrates that in talking about the greengrocer. The greengrocer is kind of the famous personage in his in his essay, The Power of the Powerless. And he he says, look, a greengrocer is like a just be someone who runs a, a grocery store. Like think about like a small corner grocery store, even a Trader Joe's or something today, and he says the greengrocer has in his in his uh, window a sign that says "Workers of the World Unite." It was a famous slogan that uh, was is in the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx, and of course, Soviet the Soviet Union and those behind the Iron Curtain under its sway were were dominated by Mar- Marxian thinking, and um. And so workers of the world unite was a way of saying I'm behind this whole system. I'm for it. And most and it was required, apparently, for for everyone. I don't know if, if it was just if you were a shop owner, or a business owner, if also you were supposed to put it up if you were a homeowner in your in your window as well. But uh, shop owners were just expected to have that little placard up workers of the world unite that was provided by the state, no doubt. And um, he said, you know. People put it up. The greengrocer puts it up in his window. He doesn't just put it up and puts it up once and then just keeps it up and doesn't believe it. And in fact, uh, 
probably has lots of ill thoughts about it, has seen the, the damage that that whole system, that that little phrase uh, represents, has done on his life and the freedoms that it has stole from him and the, the hundreds of millions of murders that it has led to, that it led to over the 20th century, the course of the 20th century, um, the, the millions of lives that it cost. But, but nonetheless, uh, doesn't want any trouble and uh, if it keeps the sign up, doesn't believe it, but it's an easy thing to do just to keep it up, put it up once and keep it up for years. And he's allowed to continue to his business and to have a family, et cetera, et cetera. The authorities won't bother him. Uh, so he thinks, right? But the little act of taking it down doesn't seem like a big act. The little act of taking it down is uh, it's asserting truth by saying this is I don't believe this. And therefore, I'm not going to speak this to the world. So I'm taking it down. And the the consequences to the, of that little action could be huge. You could end up going to prison, dying. Your family could suffer. You could lose your business, et cetera. Um, people would maybe not be allowed to go to your store, et cetera. And so, um, tiny act, possibly big consequences. But if and and seemingly the state wins, it's a small act, big big negative repercussions for you, the citizen, uh, but not a lot of positive, maybe no positive. But you're speaking truth. If everyone, however, Vaclav Havel says, if everybody would do this it, at the same time, the state would have the state is is only able to function because people are going along with it. If everyone all at once decides no more, are we going to speak lies. We're going to commit to only saying what is true and never saying anything that's untrue as far as we can are able. Then the state would crumble. It wouldn't it wouldn't have any support anymore and it would it would fail, which eventually did happen. Right. Eventually it did happen through the power of prayer as well, and many other things. Um, so I think of the power of the powerless when, when, I, when I read here our text for this, this past Sunday, Acts 24, where Paul is going, he goes before the governor um, of, of Judea under, under the Roman state, Felix, who's an unjust man. He's, we'll talk about this a little bit more in a second, but he's, he's, he's unjust, he's, he's perverse, he has not maintained peace far from it for the Jews. And um, Paul goes before him and makes a defense before him for the accusations that are brought against him by the Jews. That's, that's Acts 24. He's in Caesarea. He's taken from Jerusalem down to Caesarea, which is a coastal town. Robin and I, again, my wife, Robin and I have been there. It's, uh, you can tell just from the ruins. I mean, it's still beautiful, but it was a beautiful, beautiful town. Um, obviously named after Caesar, a Roman place. And it was the capital, like I said, of Judea. And that's where Felix was. And staying in Herod, Herod the Great's old old headquarters. His, I think it's called his Praetorium. And a uh, beautiful seaside town. Paul ends up there for two years, kept under guard and in, in jail. And uh, so that's our that's our setting. And, and I think of the power of the powerless when, when I read this text because uh, – a suit is brought against him, and the first character that we see right at the opening of chapter 24 is Tertullus. And Tertullus is, he's, uh, so we're going to look at Tertullus, we're going to look at Paul, secondly, and then thirdly, we're going to look at Felix. And I think Felix is the most, I mean, Paul's words are the most robust um, and pithy and substantial. Felix, though, I think is the most excuse me, is the most interesting, and I'll, t- I'll talk about that thirdly. Um, so we're going to look at Tertullus first, and then Paul, and then Felix. And, and Tertullus, he opens he opens the scene 
And he's a lawyer. He's an attorney. He's a professional argue and orator. The, the Greek word uses rhetor, from which we get rhetoric, rhetorician. And he's a he's a professional speaker. And he opens with uh, we, we sort of um, non-biblical, just just Roman historians, secular Roman historians will go to to Luke and to Acts, especially to to look at Roman uh, to learn things about Roman, the Roman legal system from Luke's reporting, because he's such a good historian. And he, at chapter 24 here is, is one of the places we see that manifest. Uh, we see Tertullus open with a, just a classic Roman opening in a courtroom setting. And I don't have my notes. Well, actually, I do have my notes with me. Um, he opens with something called, a, I think it's like a Capitatio Beneficiae. But basically, he's, it's a captivating, um, beneficial opening. Capita, yeah, captatio benevolentiae. Um, it's an endeavor to capture the goodwill of the judge by essentially flattering him, saying good stuff about him, regardless of of whether or not he's a good judge, a just judge. Saying good things about him, flattering him, and then usually it would involve the promise of brevity, even if that wasn't meant to be kept. Um, and that was standard. And uh, it was so standard that there's that, that phrase there. And we see that here with Tertullus. And he, he opens that way in verses two and following. And um, but here it's it's he goes he goes beyond that to the point that one one scholar actually says he descends to almost nauseating flattery. Why? Um, because he says here. He says here. Since this is verse two. Since through you we enjoy, he's speaking on behalf of the Jews, the Jews have hired him. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent, Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. Now, that insult, you know, those words, they, they are obviously, um, they're, they're favorable, very favorable to Felix, and on their own, they wouldn't necessarily be flattery, but they're nauseating because he says the exact opposite of what's true. Felix, here, far from securing peace for the Jews and reforms, had in reality put down several insurrections with such, I'm quoting here, barbarous brutality that he earned for himself the horror, not the thanks of the Jewish population. So Tertullus uh, disregards the truth completely. He's willing to flatter and totally up in the truth just to win an argument here. Um, and we see similar things in a very different way from Felix here. There's no, there's the regard for the truth is not utmost. Rather, it's, it's to obtain the objective in this, in Tertullus's case, to win the case, even if it means mischaracterizing a man who's not done injustice, far from it. Um, and if it means putting him away unjustly, then fine, I just want to win the case. So he's not, truth is not his objective here. And we can see that that's really that sort of underpins, even though the Roman system, we, we see Paul saved time and time again through the Roman system. The Jews are trying to kill him, but the Roman system, the legal system for which Rome was justly famous, uh, allows Paul to have trial after trial. And that's a good thing. But the, the system is such that flattery um, and these sorts of things are, are encouraged. Uh, rhetoric, oratory, good sounding, polished stuff. Truth is perhaps not the um, the ultimate objective. I mean, you can kind of see that in when Pilate, who's trying Jesus, says, what is truth? He's 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 jaded. And um, 
the Romans were a jaded, a jaded people, and, and Christianity changed that. And so Paul, by contrast, and then we see this with Felix too, where he's not, he's not ultimately concerned with the truth. He's concerned with really his own position, his comfort, his pleasure. And he chooses that in the face of what I think he sees to be true. And that's what's so fascinating about verse 25 here at the end of the chapter. And we'll get to that. But by contrast, Paul is, he, he has a very short introduction as he, so three, three accusations are brought against him, all of which have a kernel of truth, a sound of truth in, but none of them, none of them is true. And Paul um, clears his name, not necessarily because he cares about his own reputation, but so that he can preach the gospel. So he, he says, I'm glad that you are, are a judge. And so therefore I'm going to, I'm going to gladly make my case before you. And he sees the word joyfully. So he makes his case with joy. He, there's no whining. There's no untruth. And then he sets forth exactly what he has done. And in the words of one scholar, he, he's a, is, his approach is actually quite brilliant. No, no surprise. Uh, Craig Keener, the scholar, he says, uh, it's brilliant because Paul in verse 14 is confessing a non-crime. And that creates a masterful defense. He says in verse 14, so his confession is, I, I do confess. Uh, I do confess that I, uh, he says what? He says, I confess this to you, that according to the way, which is, the, that's how people referred to early Christianity before they were called Christians and even after. Um, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, which, by the way, was, that was a very Jewish way of putting it, too, because the Jews still today, my rabbi friends, talk about the way. The, the Jews have, they refer to something called the way. And in Hebrew, it's halacha. And um, that's the, the Hebrew word for way. And it's, it's the path, the proverbial path of, of wisdom and life, the path of God, of obedience to his commands, his mercy, his compassion. Um, it's God's way. It's the fabric of the universe. It's the life that makes sense. It's the light of fruitful life of fruitfulness. And um, Jesus comes along within that context and says, I am the halacha. I am the way, which nobody had ever talked like that. Uh, so eventually they crucified him. But Paul says, look, I, I follow. He says, here's my confession that according to the way, which they call a sect. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written the prophets. In other words, the Jews are the ones bringing these, th- these charges against me, saying I'm a disturber of the peace. But in fact, I'm a follower of the way, and I am telling you that the way has stepped into space and time and has become one of us and was crucified by Rome and is alive. He met me on the way to Damascus, and he is the fulfillment of everything that the Jews have been hoping for for centuries. He is the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures. He is the Messiah that we have been waiting for, that our Bible points us toward. And so, essentially what he's saying is, I'm not, I'm not saying something new. I'm saying that the thing that we've been waiting for is here. And that's my proclamation. That's my good news. He has solved the problem of our sin and our rebellion by taking it upon himself and by rising to new life, having left, uh, left, left the old man in the ground, dead and buried. And he started something completely new. He started a new creation, free from the curse of sin and death and hell. And he's the king and he's alive. And so Paul's, Paul is saying, look, my, my crime is that I'm, I'm a good Jew. 
I'm everything that our fathers and customs and the law and the prophets point to, I am proclaiming and I am following. And so if you're going to put me in chains for that, go ahead. So it's a masterful defense, but Paul sticks to the truth. He refuses. There's no fulsomeness. There's no flattery. There's no whining. Why am I here? This is this is a miscarriage of justice. No, he's committed to the truth. He's committed to live not by lies. He's committed to never speak an untruth because he knows that Jesus is not only the halakha, the way, he is the truth. So Christians, in contrast, increasingly in our society, to a society that is committed to, very much like, I mean, scarily, very much like um, Eastern Europe was under the Soviet curtain, uh, a society propped up on on falsehood. Our society is increasingly becoming like that. Uh, you have the virtue signaling. Just put something on your website. Um, say say this say this phrase. Uh, put this phrase up as a banner over your business, or your website, or your life, or your household. And this is what I believe. Whether it's on Facebook or on a web business website or whatever it is, and you can go along and get along. But if you don't, or if you speak out against it, or say I don't, I don't agree with this, then you're going to get there's going to be hell to pay. There will be consequences. Um, but we have to do, we have to speak truth, and we, um, and sometimes that involves removing things, and sometimes that involves not saying things, and and it always involves preaching the gospel. That's the other thing, and the main driver with Paul is not only is he truthfully um, setting forward the facts about what he has done and what he believes, but he's He's using all that as a, a ground to stand on from which to preach and proclaim the gospel. And that's really the heart of this text. And then we'll touch on that right now, and then we'll move finally to Felix. But he talks about, um, he says that to worship Jesus is to worship the God of our fathers. So he's like, look, it's to be a good Jew is to, is to worship Jesus. He's a long-awaited Messiah. He's the one that fulfills the Old Testament. And it's and it's a way to have hope. Um, it's a way to have hope. Okay, so he says that in let's see. He says that in verse fifteen. Okay, everything laid down like I just read in the law and the and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And there's so much here, but Paul, the message of the gospel is a message of hope. It's not just information, it's news. It's news that the, the problem that has kept us from God has been taken care of, um, the sin problem, because the Savior became a sin sacrifice for us. He died as a substitute, as our representative in our place. And he killed that, and then he buried it. And when he rose, he rose a second Adam, a new type of... Adam means man. He, he rose as a second type of man. Not not part of the old order, not part of the sin order, not part of the rebellious, um, eaten from the tree, gone our own way order that we're born into. No, he rose a second Adam, a new human. And we who trust in him are born a second time, we're born again. And we're represented by the second Adam, not the first. And um, and all creation will follow in the train of the, of the second Adam who, who is alive. And so... The, the, the resurrection with the, which the Jews believed in, but they believed it would come at the end of time and that it would lead to a, a restored creation free from the domain of sin. Um, 
actually has broken into what Paul is saying is, and this is one of the things that's so revolutionary, that that we had it slightly wrong. The resurrection isn't just coming at the end of time. It came. It has come. It started with the resurrection um, of the first head of, of, of grain in the field of this, this grain crop uh, that has popped. And we know that all the rest of the crops are going to pop eventually. And that's Jesus. When Jesus rose from the dead, it was like, it was like the, the, you know, the phrase is used, the first, the first fruit of a new creation. So, you know, when you have a, when you have a field of any sort of crop, let's say corn, and the first head produces that, that first corn, um, on the cob, you know that the rest is coming. The rest of the crops are gonna, are gonna produce fruit eventually. And Jesus, Paul is saying Jesus is that first. He's that first head. And so something new has started and there's going to be a massive harvest and there's going to be a new creation and there are going to be many that follow that are resurrected in his, in, um, in, in with faith in him and represented by him and in line with him. And so, um, what happened with Jesus is that the resurrection that was going to happen at the end of time actually has broken into this age. And we who look to Christ are born anew. Like I said, we're born again. Something new happens and create, and it, it makes us new from the inside out. And eventually the resurrection of the body will follow. And then all creation will actually be restored as well. And that's what's going to happen at the end of time when Christ comes a second time and, and finishes what he started. So that thing that was going to happen at the end of time is broken into into this age and it's and it happened 2000 years ago and it's still and it's still happening and um some when that happens someone goes from old to new someone goes from dead to life someone goes from being represented by the first adam to being in the second adam they're born again they're born a second time and create new creation sort of erupts and grows from that grows around um, a new birth. When someone's born again, things are, the environment around them begins to change. And so it, 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 it's happening and it's been happening for 2000 years and it'll keep happening as we preach the gospel until Christ returns and finishes that. And then the judgment and then the wedding feast. And that's one thing, other thing Paul refers to is that look, a lot of Christians think there, there are misunderstandings about the resurrection and about the, the resurrected state. A couple of them are that, um, that, we're going to heaven and we're going to stay in heaven. We're going to, and heaven's going to be us spiritually with the Lord. No. Our, if I die right now, my spirit, my body is in the ground. My spirit goes to be with the Lord. I'm with him. But when he returns, then all those that are dead that trusted in Christ, those, those, rather those that are dead that trusted in Christ and those that didn't will be resurrected and receive new bodies. They're, their bodies will emerge from the ground or the sea or wherever they were. And they, their spirits will be reunited with their bodies. And then those that are still alive when Christ returns will, um, they will receive new bodies as well. And that's the other thing. And so the, our future state is not the, the temporary holding state is that our spirits are separated from our bodies. But the, the final state will be that we all will, our spirits will, um, be reunited with, 
are remade, recreated bodies. And the second misunderstanding is that it will only happen for believers. Paul makes clear here and in other places, no, the resurrection is for the just and the unjust. We will all in a physical state, in a real place, whether the new heavens and new earth or hell, have bodies that will last forever. Whether in eternal bliss with the Lord, to rule and reign with him, and to create and to judge and to enjoy forever his presence and the presence of others in this new creation, free from death and sin and selfishness, or in hell with Satan and his demons and all those who have rejected Christ with new bodies, uh, suffering body and soul forever. So the resurrection is for everyone. It's for the just and the unjust. Um, and that's something that I think a lot of Christians misunderstand and Paul makes clear here. And the last thing I just want to say having looked at Tertullus and then Paul and the difference between Tertullus and Paul in Paul's total commitment to the truth and manifestly to the truth as it gives him a platform for preaching the truth, the gospel, the hope of our salvation in Christ Jesus, um, is Felix. Verse 25 tells us something really fascinating. Felix was an interesting character. Um, Before I get to verse 25, just a little background on Felix. He... Had we're, We learn in verse 22 that he had a rather accurate knowledge of the way, which means Christianity as a, a sort of, it was thought of as a sect by some, but it was really, it, as Paul presents it, the, the completion of all the Jews have hoped for and longed for. Jesus is a Jew. He came to make us children of God, Jew and Gentile alike, through his being the child of God, the son of God. We are adopted by faith through Jesus Christ. In Jesus, through Jesus, we're adopted and made sons and daughters, made true Jews, right? The Israel of God. It's not a, it's not a replacement theology. It's a fulfillment theology. And Paul talks about that at length in Galatians and Romans. Go read them. <clears throat> but, but Felix knew about the way as the fulfillment of Judaism. And he knew a lot about Judaism. And he, he was very curious about it. And he was personally invested because he had married a Jewess, um, Drusilla, and he, she was 16 when he stole her. She was his third wife, and he stole her from another man, and he used a magician. He employed a magician to help him uh, steal Drusilla, and she was 20, so four years into their marriage at this point, so still quite young. And he, like I said earlier, uh, he put violently put down uprisings and other things, um, and unjustly so many in many cases uh, of the Jews. And so he was a violent man. He was an unjust man. He was a perverse man. He stole another man's wife at age 16. I mean, his, and, and, and as a third wife, I mean, come on. The guy was, the guy was a mess. But he was interested nonetheless in, and knew quite a bit about um, Judaism and its fulfillment, um, Christianity, the way. And he, we see that played out when he, he actually meets with Paul after this day on trial. He meets with Paul. He and his wife meet with Paul for weeks on end, I think, uh, for a long time afterwards. And day by day, they seek this private audience with Paul. And Paul is all too happy to, to give them uh, what they're asking for, which is a clear picture of, of the way of Christianity, of Jesus as the Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for, um, the, re- the crucified and resurrected king. And he speaks to them about 
the resurrection, he speaks to them about self-control and he speaks to them about the coming judgment. And the verse 20, so that's all context. Verse 25 is the really, I think, the most interesting verse in the passage. And it says that as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. And said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. This ends with Paul uh, being kept under guard and in prison here in Caesarea, the seaside town, this capital of the province of Judea, for two, over two years. So Paul's, Paul's, you know, we stood right where, and I've stood in a similar place in Rome, where Paul was kept under guard for, for two years. A long time. And and Acts ends with him, if I'm not mistaken, in twenty chapter 28. With him, uh, I know he was, of course, kept under house arrest in Rome, but I think it was also for two years, and then you have a sort of ellipsis, and then at some point we understand that he was he was executed. But he's in these places, Caesarea, and then in a few chapters, Rome, for long periods of time, and he's taking advantage. Uh, but but Felix just leaves him there. He leaves him there because he looks for Paul to give him money um, after this, and Paul won't do it. He'd rather have money than um, than bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And it seems, what's so interesting is that he, it says he's alarmed. And that comes from the Greek word phobos, phobos, you know, from, from which we get our word phobia, fear. He was, he was afraid. He was terrified. Why? That's the question. Why was Felix terrified? And then, and then the way that he acted is he looked for a bribe and then he kind of crawfished, he backed away. And then he, he just kept Paul under house arrest and, and kept him there just to rot as it were. Why? Well, somebody said, and I think this is probably true, that one of the things that Paul talked about is the coming judgment. And I think Felix understood that if he didn't change his position as being on Christ's side and surrendering to Jesus as the king um, and bring his life under the command of Christ, that he was going to be judged by Christ. And that's ter- that's a scary thing. But I think, I think there's more to it. Um, I think, personally, that from what we know of Felix and all he knew of the way and of Judaism and of the scriptures, that he, especially with somebody as, force, as forceful as Paul in his, in his elucidation of his beliefs and of the truth of the, the creator God stepping into space and time to live the life that we can't live and die the death that we deserve and then to rise. And about Paul's own testimony about meeting, meeting the risen Christ on the road. He, I mean, Felix no doubt heard all about all about that. And I think it becomes clear enough to him that he sees the truth and he sees who Christ is. And uh, he counts the cost. If I, this means everything. If this is true, it means everything in my life has to change. No more, no more violence, no more unjust behavior, no more, um, no more of living the way that I've been living. No more perverseness. No more pride, self-centeredness. It all has to die. There's, there's, you know, because that's what Paul talks about with him too, self-control. The fact that Christ is king and saves us completely from our sins and makes us right with God doesn't mean we can live how we want to. It means that we live how he wants us to. He's our king. It means self-control. And some people think because, because it says Paul speaks about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, that self-control falling from righteousness means that Paul's talking about how we have to be righteous. But that's not the gospel. And that's, that's not the gospel that Paul ever preached. The gospel that Paul preached is that, and this is a comment that John Stott makes, and I think it's right on, that 
he's in saying that he spoke to Felix about the right about righteousness. It almost certainly a shorthand for the fact that it's the the dikaiosune. That's the Greek word for righteousness. It's the righteousness um, that is apart from the law. Okay, it's apart from our keeping of the law because we can't keep it. This is what he says in Romans three verse twenty one and following. We are damned by the law of God because we cannot keep it from the heart. We break it every day, every minute of the day. We never love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we never love our neighbors ourselves. But that's the essence of the law. It's what he made us for. But we we're broken, we're depraved, we're dead in our sins and trespasses. So the law condemns us. But there's a righteousness that has appeared apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And it's a righteousness found through faith in Jesus Christ. And it is gained. It is the righteousness of God manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, grabbed a hold of by faith as we look to him. And we see his perfect life and his death, not for his own sins, but for ours in our place. His, his life in our place, his death in our place, his resurrection in our place. And it is a righteousness that is that is grabbed hold of, apprehended, and taken advantage of by faith in him. It's not through works. It's not through our works. It's through his work. And we receive it by faith. And that's the that's the righteousness that Paul was conveying to Felix. And it me and it and Felix gets it. He gets it. He says, if this is true, if this is true, then life's not about behavior. And I can't live how I want to anymore. He's then he's really the king. He's the creator of all things has stepped into this world and gone to a Roman cross and he's alive. And he gets something of that. And so it's just a terrifying picture, really. It's a sad picture of a man who understands but rejects. So one of the things we can say is that he shows us that it's not, Felix shows it's not enough just to understand the gospel. You must surrender to it, embrace it by faith and say, Jesus, you're not just the righteous king who died in our place. Even Satan knows that. But you did it for me. And I say yes to you. I give you my life. Because you gave me yours. I trust you. I love you. Forgive me. Cleanse me. You for me. Come into my heart. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And do, and command me. That is it's letting go of the self-will and saying yes to the will of God in Christ. And that is what it means to be born again. And Felix was unwilling to do that. And uh, just as Judas was, just as Satan was and ever will be. Um, and so I think the question that I should leave you with is, are you willing? Are you willing to let Christ take your life and give you his? It's, it's an act of the will, it's an act of surrender. It's an act of saying yes to him and not just looking from afar and saying, yes, you, uh, you are the king. You are the Savior. You did these things. No, you did them for me. I give you. I give you myself. I believe. That's what faith is. Um, stepping into that. And so uh, it's for every man, woman, and child to, to decide, will they, will they follow him? Will they say yes to him? Will they trust him? And Felix rejected him. And he rejected him for what he perceived to be something better, and he was wrong, right? He wanted to keep hold of his cruelty and his... Um, comfort and his luxury and his power. And he was even willing to, um, he, he thought it, <laughs> for a tawdry sum, he was willing to exchange an eternal inheritance. 
the sum of little getting his grease, his palms greased a little bit by Paul. Hey, I, he was just looking for a little handout by Paul. I'll let you go if uh, if you pay me. Paul refused. How sad. And it's really just, as I close, a wonderful picture. A sad, a devastating picture, but a true one. Of the thing, when we say no to Christ, it's we are saying no to him in exchange for just these tawdry things that will eventually turn to dust and ashes and blow away. But Christ and his kingdom will remain forever. So we're exchanging momentary, fleeting, empty things for a glorious, eternal, weighty um, reward in Christ himself. Don't do that. Come to him now. God bless you.